This summer, don't just watch soccer. Play in the DraftKings Real Shot Challenge presented by Jägermeister. The rules of the game are simple. Just pick winners. At the end of the tournament, the five top point getters in each nation's leaderboard walk home with a national team jersey and a Jägermeister jacket. All entries are automatically entered into an overall leaderboard where the prizes are even more lucrative, like the ultimate fan experience, an all-expenses-paid trip to the winning team's country to celebrate sweet, sweet victory like a local. Enjoy a VIP soccer experience, including game tickets, transportation, and swag, plus extra cash so you can roll like a meister. You don't need cash to enter. It's free. So what are you waiting for? Head to DraftKings.com slash RealShot to adopt your team, get in the game, and win exclusive prizes. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash RealShot for details. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast World Cup Daily. Day two of World Cup 2018 is in the books, highlighted by the remarkable Cristiano Ronaldo hat trick in Portugal's 3-3 tie with Spain. Brian Strauss and I will be talking about that and other topics today as part of our podcast coming to you daily from Russia through July 16th. Just a small request, it would be a huge help if you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. It helps people find us. In this episode, I'm also joined by Bruce Arena to discuss his new book, What's Wrong With Us? A Coach's Blunt Take on the State of American Soccer After a Lifetime on the Touchline. Onward! Grant Wall and Brian Strauss here in Moscow, in the same hotel room once again. Uh, Day two of the World Cup has passed, and a standout game from Cristiano Ronaldo, Brian. 3-3. Portugal, Spain, Cristiano Ronaldo hat trick, one of the great group stage games you will ever see in a World Cup, right? Yeah, and I got to admit, I for me the game itself and 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 the drama and the the back and forth and the context and the rivalry and the names and the you know bizarre Ger- plays. Gerard PK giving the stink eye to Ronaldo and <laughs> and and that yeah, Ronaldo scored three goals and 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 He's, as we talked about, all during Real Madrid's run. I mean, there's just not a, a better big game, big moment player than him. And, I mean, he's very handsome, and, and he's just got a lot going for him. Um, but the hat trick, you know, is a penalty and a... Um, that he earned. Uh, that he earned. Um, you know, a, a, a gift, uh, um, you know, howler boner from, from De Gea, and then, and then a free kick. Um, that so, he earned. Good for him, but to me it was to me it's about more the game's about more the day's about more than than his three goals. Um, you know, it was it was an amazing match. Um, Spain certainly uh, would have deserved the three points had they had they gotten them, um, and uh, and it was a lot of fun. So um, especially after two two more dour games that uh, that started the day. So um, yeah, day two, day twenty. You know, it's like <laughs> I think part of like we're through the looking glass, man. You know, like it's about three in the morning right now. You know, C's are S's and 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 P's are R's and H's are N's, and it just starts to it starts to twist you. You know, like I'm upside down. Is that a Cyrillic alphabet reference? Yeah, like like you realize how like you really count on the alphabet. All I know is restaurant is pectopa. Pectopa. <laughs> you know, and that helps me a lot here in Russia. Yeah, that's like the Rosetta Stone for the rest for the rest of the alphabet. 
this is another thing. It's like we both traveled a lot, and I always want to be a good. You know, I've always believed this. You know, if it's my chance to leave an impression, as, as an you know, maybe I'm the first American they've met, or don't maybe be I the can, ugly American, right? And 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 at the same time, be a be a good guest. It's their it's their house. It's their country. So you know, you learn a few words. You learn to say I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, yes, no. What does it cost? I'm not even trying here. I don't care. I I am extremely brazenly saying in English to people. I don't speak Russian, and then just letting them try to solve the problem. I don't know why, um, but I'm making no effort and have no plan to. Um, That's ugly American stuff, man. It's not. I, it I just disagree. I, I'm just saying I don't speak Russian. You know, and uh, look, they bid for the World Cup. You know, they asked for this. <laughs> so back to three three Spain Portugal. Uh, I would say this: like this was the game for me that. It, unofficially has started the World Cup for me. That, uh, you know, we saw day one, Russia five, Saudi Arabia zero. Saudi Arabia was terrible. Good for the Russians to get the win uh, and the goal difference. Uh, two pretty dour games, as you said, today. Uh, Uruguay won, Egypt zero, uh, with the late uh, goal uh, from Jimenez on the set piece. And then on another set piece, uh, Iran gets its second World Cup victory ever, one nothing over Morocco, which is probably the better team. Um, so that set the stage for really a, a wild game uh, tonight here in Sochi. And you know, if actually, if I'm a Spain fan, I'm actually not that disappointed moving forward. And here's why: um, there was concern heading into this tournament about, oh, Spain's front line won't score any goals. And Diego Costa was terrific tonight. Now, he may not have the same style as the Spanish midfield, and it may seem a little jarring that the two goals he had tonight um, didn't come out of what the Spanish midfield was doing, which was some very sort of classic Spanish stuff. He created a a tremendous finish for his first goal after having some contact uh, with Pepe, which I think Pepe embellished quite a bit. I think Pepe enjoys contact. Um, the point I made during the, uh, I think during the game on my Twitter was how many games do you run into where Sergio Ramos is the number three villain on the field behind Diego Costa and Pepe? Um, so I'm okay with no, uh, VAR not coming into effect, uh, on that first goal by Diego Costa, which made it one, one. In fact, I think it would have set a bad message, uh, to the tournament if, VAR had turned around that goal. Um, And then uh, Costa scored off a set piece, really well taken set piece. Uh, That was after Ronaldo uh, had scored on the the De Gea howler, right? So Spain comes back, comes from behind twice, gets the the 3-2 lead when Nacho makes up for his penalty earlier in the game with just one of the sweeter, cooler hits you'll ever see on a half volley off the post and in. And I thought Spain had this game won, right? Yes. But. But Gerard Piquet made a stupid play on the foul. I knew Ronaldo was going to score that free kick. Like kind just, kind just of like. Just knew it. Kind of like the USA Ghana game in 2014 when you were sitting next to me right, before right, the late right. corner kick by Graham Zusi to John Brooks, and you said he's got, the U.S. is going to score this. That was that was that was some 
That was some vintage Jurgen dust right there, wasn't it? There's I mean, no, there's nothing like vintage Jurgen dust. Here's the other thing: you skipped an important part. Okay. Like Cristiano Ronaldo, like apparently agreed to like a twenty million dollar fine for tax evasion. Twenty two million dollars he mean, lost today, like, and yet it was still a net positive day for him. It's just remarkable, and against the country that's finding him and gave him like two years suspended <laughs> prison sentence. What a day, you know. Like are they gonna are they gonna double that now that you know like like are they gonna are they gonna ask for a renegotiation? That's just incredible. Um, he probably earned thirty million dollars in endorsements today, so it was a net positive. Fair enough. Yeah, I just think that that's awesome. I just think the timing the timing of that uh, that was an that was an Orlando City quality news dump <laughs> by by the uh, the Spanish whatever you call it tax authority. You know, um, I. Uh, no, he's cl- like I said. What else is there to say? He's incredibly clutch. I thought Spain was a lot of fun to watch. Um, they were, they must have had the ball. It felt like I haven't seen the statistics, but it must have been. It felt like seventy percent. It felt like something yeah. ridiculous. They dominate the second half. Um, David Silva was just effervescent today. Just really creative. Um, I really enjoyed watching him play. Um, you know, I was a little worried. I, I thought Iniesta was good. I thought he just brought some nice balance to yeah. things. And, and once he left. Um, it seemed like Portugal had a bit more of the play toward the end, but they were also behind, so that's a, a game state situation. Um, yeah, but it's a great game, and, and obviously the the intrigue now. I think, I mean, I agree with you. I guess that that you know, if you're a Spain fan, you saw some good things to 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 f- be happy about going forward, and you know, you kind of assume that De Gea is not going to do that again, right? Um, you certainly hope, but uh, but uh, but Iran's in first place in the group. And, As in Russia's in first place in Group A. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's all kinds of crazy statistics. You know, the analytics would suggest that that Iran is going through, and either Spain or or or, or Portugal is in trouble. Not analytics—that's the wrong word. Whatever, Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> so, but it was a fun game, and 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 uh, you know, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to cover it in a way because I would have probably burst into tears um, when that uh, when all the goal went in. Because you know, for a fan, that's delight for a, a writer on deadline that's the worst nightmare um because uh, i spent the day at spartak stadium hanging out with your boy hey mir hey mir and uh get iceland re- coach getting ready for uh tomorrow's iceland versus messy um fabulousness um so yeah fun day i mean yeah i i i do think when you look at how Spain's gonna and Portugal are gonna lead this game I think they're both gonna be in good shape in the group um I thought Iran (laughs) congrats on the three points that's historic for them uh I don't see them taking points from Portugal or Spain yeah right the the group is so unbalanced that it's if, if anything's gonna sort of put paid to this idea that if you win your I mean it's like I I looked it up today I mentioned it in the Iceland story I wrote that's like an 80 percent plus um, of the time that a team wins its opening game and advances. But look, this is a anyone can see that this is an extremely top-heavy group, and it's it's really, really difficult to imagine um, Spain and Portugal not each taking maximum points from their next two games. The other thing I would say about the other two games is set pieces. I mean, it's... You've been hanging around with Alexi too much. Probably so. But you look at, um, at what uh, Uruguay did in a game where Mohamed Salah did not play. And so you're thinking, wow, Egypt's played a pretty good game here considering Salah hasn't been there. Guys like Higazi, El Nene, um, really solid in the middle for them. And I came away also convinced that 
Hector Cooper never had any intention of playing Mohamed Salah in this game and, and merely lied the day before to sort of add some spice to uh, what must Uruguay be thinking heading into this game. In, in, we took I, that bait. Yeah, exactly. It kind of reminded me of the nonsense with Altidore and Klinsman when Altidore was hurt at World Cup 2014, and, and Jurgen kept act, acting like there was a chance he could play when there was no chance he could. They like trotted him out to jog a little bit, you know. Like we'd, so we'd, we'd go to training and we'd see Josie jogging on the side of the field when it was really Westworld animatronic Josie, and <laughs> and real and real Josie was in some sort of like hyperbaric suspended animation. Yeah, it was so dumb, but. Um, I certainly hope Salah's ready for their second game. It's their big game uh, against Russia, which I think could be very decisive in this group. It bums me out to see Sad Salah, which is all we've seen really since he went out of the Champions League final. Um, but uh, give your Uruguay some credit here because their two center backs from Atletico Madrid, Diego Godin and Jose Jimenez, um, really made a difference today. Godin basically tried to put that team on his back, was making these bombing runs out of the central defense late and Jimenez getting his head on the the game winner uh you have an older veteran you have a younger guy very symbolic of what this Uruguay team brings to the table and much as Atletico has built uh their success in recent years except for the last one on set piece success uh they score a ton off set pieces Godin is ageless that guy that guy I love that guy yeah that guy is a, is a thoroughbred he he's really cool. It it did piss me off that they didn't wear the Celeste. Like that's just that's a foul. Like they they should be they should like get a point deduction. I thought their white jerseys were kind of classy looking. Why, dude? It's no. Andre Leon Talley is in the house. No, no one knows who that is, man. Look him up. Google Andre Leon Talley. Brian Strauss is the Andre Leon Talley of soccer. No How is that plain white jersey any more classy like, than any of the ten million other plain white jerseys? I like that the teams light wear. blue accents. I don't like the fact that Uruguay has four stars above their crest because they somehow uh, include two Olympic championships in the twenties as like stars to go next to their two they World call Cup those, stars. That is that is that's a thing. Poor. That's poor. That is a thing. They they because the World Cup hadn't started yet, Uruguay considers their nineteen twenty four and nineteen twenty eight Olympic gold medals as official world championships. So poor. And so wears four stars above their crest. Man. Probably because Argentina has two. I wonder if I wonder if Uruguay uh, was doing this before 1986. <laughs> um, so tell yeah, me a little Godin, bit. Of... Godin is the Godin is the shit. Of, uh, he's a if you can like watching like a center back who like pounds people, like he's he's a good one to watch. Might be the best center back in the world. Perhaps maybe? make a case. Pure center back. Yeah. Like he's not he's not messing around usually with other stuff unless yeah. he decides to just I'm gonna go straight down the middle because I'm pissed off that my teammates <laughs> kind of suck today. Uh, Luis Suarez was really bad today, by the way. He was. And that, and I was thinking of that when we were talking about De Gea. Like, like that's another thing. Like, like, you know, Suarez will finish some of those chances in a later game, right? I mean, he will. Like, I, today. I he doesn't miss any sitters like that. That today was crazy. Is, today's a, it has to be an outlier. Well, it, it has to be an outlier for, for them to, to, you know, I mean, they'll get through the group, obviously, um, just because the rest of the group is trash. But, um, you know, to, to to make to, to to get through the round of sixteen, obviously he's gonna have to finish those. I don't use the trash anal or the trash emoji enough on Twitter. You know the little trash can thing that Suarez gets the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> That's that'll be the 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 podcast's official new nightly award, the trash can emoji. Also, to go with our moment with uh, GT Buffon, <laughs> trash can for <laughs> Yes. <laughs> 
Oh man. Wee. Yeah, we're 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 loopy. Grant's got Grant's got wine. I I uh I had a couple real I what was it called? I had I had two really really large and tall um very dark beers tonight nice. at the place where I went to watch the uh the Spain game and it's the first alcohol I've had since I've been here. And you know, I've probably slept 12 hours in Russia like in 4 days and I'm feeling it. Awesome. Yeah. It also helps to eat. Not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, no food here, man. There's no food. That's why Russia. You a banana, man. I eat it. Dude, what? Stop! Stop ruining my bit. <laughs> <laughs> what are you letting people in behind the curtain for? Sorry, sorry. God damn! You're the one who told him I was having this, some wine. This banana was my dinner. Um. So tell me about the Iceland press conference today, Brian. It was packed. It was packed. They're the world's underdog. Um. Uh. I just completely lost my train of thought. Um, Bad questions, probably at the press conference. Oh my god! Well, Gunnarsson, the it was it was it was Heimir, your bo- Heimir DDS, and, <laughs> the dentist, and <laughs> Heimir, Heimir, and Aaron Gunnarsson, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. So. He's the captain. He has he, a wonderful Iceland tattoo on his back, and he's great at long throw-ins. He is good at long throw-ins. He hasn't. What do you mean he's an Iceland? Like of the map? Like of the country? Just like Google Aaron Gunnarsson and back tat. It's worse than Ben Affleck's back tattoo. I do it right now. Is it worse than Christian Pulisic's tattoo? That's a good question. Let's see. Let's see if it is. I'm Googling it now. I love that we're doing this like in the middle of our show. You know, this is pretty great. There's This is some Lord of the Rings shit going on. This is really good. Right? Yes. See? Yes. All right. He's immense. Um... And uh, yeah, and he and he's been he's been battling some knee problems and and um, uh, what's his name? Gilfie. Yeah, Gilfie's been battling some knee problems. But he's but gonna anyway, be, he's gonna be healthy, right? Yeah, he played like sixty plus minutes the yeah. other day, and they're friendly, so he'll be fine. Um, but uh, no, it was yeah, it was packed. It was packed, and 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 Gunnarsson was just like, I realize now how big this is. Like, whole holy shit! Like, I had a cool mo. I I was walking, um. When I was leaving the press conference, the guys next to me were speaking. We were walk- there's a long, long walk through the stadium, through all these tunnels, um, to to get back out to the media center outside the stadium. And the guys I was walking out with were speaking Icelandic. So I, I you know, confirmed they were Icelandic. And then I said, you know, I'm just curious, like how many, how many like full time, you know, football writers are there in, in Iceland? You know, how many of you are here? And they, and the guy said, "Well, you know, in terms of full time, like, I think there was four of them, and that was that was it. There's like, so it's like the United States. There was like three or four full time <laughs> writers in the country, and then he's like, there's like thirty journalists from Iceland here to cover this. Okay. Um, so I, I just was curious how many people, more than us, obviously at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was it was a chance for the global media to to show their stuff, to show their chops." What was the worst question of the press conference, Brian? Um, the, the worst pure question was the Argentine guy who simply asked them what he, they thought the score would be tomorrow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dumb question. That's just a dumb fucking question. That's just really, really bad. Um, a lot of journalists, a lot of foreign journalists like to give speeches first. Yes. So they give a speech. Uh, so a Colombian guy got up and gave a speech... <laughs> 
about how many fans there are in Colombia of Iceland and and you can see you can see the Icelandic guys just they don't know what to do you know they're just kind of like looking at each other and he goes on and on and then and then whenever they give one of the an Indian guy did a similar thing and then at the end it's it's almost always some variation of so how do you feel so how, you know how do you feel about the game and they and and the guys like we've been talking about the game for twenty like what more do you want from us what do you want from us um, I'm trying to think of some other ones uh, um, Hymir Hamir what is it it's Hamir Hamir sorry Hamir uh, sort of at the beginning kind of got out got he, I guess he's I guess he's got a little shtick down which is pretty cool right so he comes out at the start of the press conference and he says essentially. You know, I'm not telling you who's going to play. I'm not telling you my lineup, and I'm not going to stop being a dentist <laughs> because I, you know, I get asked the same questions every time. So, like, of the five next five questions, three of them are who are you start? Like, it's just incredible <laughs> that that it, it's like bringing in it's bringing in sort of again not to make another like Westworld joke, but it, that's what it is. I mean, it's like the loop. It's like these journalists have two questions they they can ask. Um, so it was really funny and, uh, I didn't ask a question. One of the things about the press conferences at a world cup, um, which was hard for me, uh, at my first world cup in, in 2010, um, you know, we, we, we cover the national team, we cover MLS, we, we, you know, we're at an MLS cup, we're at a qualifier. We know all the people there, right? We know the press people, we know the person answering the questions. So, you know, and it's the same group of us, right? It's the same 12, 15 of us that are at these events and we get called on because they know who we are. The FIFA people don't know us and don't care and don't bother. There's no, there's no pecking order. So you wind up getting, you wind up getting the blogger who, who, who gives the speech and then asks what they think the score is going to be tomorrow. Um, meanwhile, you know, you could have a guy from the AP or the New York Times or the BBC raising his hand and not getting at, you know. Actually, sometimes they know who those guys are and specifically don't give them an them. opportunity. So, well, they certainly don't know the American writers. Um, you know, I was there. Jeff Carlisle was there. there. There may have been one other. Um, Andy Doss, I think, was there from the Times. Or he was tweeting like he was. I'm sorry, Andy. Um, so, uh yeah, and none of us, none of us got called on. So, my very favorite moment from a press conference at a global soccer event was in the Confederations Cup final the day before. The U.S. had gotten to the final uh, against Brazil. Michael Jackson had died, and all of these Brazilian journalists and foreign journalists wanted to ask the U.S. players what they thought about the passing of Michael Jackson. And there's this is actually on YouTube. I should post the, the link. There's this uh, question of Landon Donovan, who's sitting next to Bob Bradley, and very seriously, the questioner says, "Donovan, how do you feel? How do you about, feel about the death of Michael Jackson?" <laughs> and, La- and Landon Donovan's like sitting there, like, "I'm playing in a final tomorrow, and you know, Michael Jackson, you know, you know, was a good musician uh, who had some dubious stuff that was going on in his life." And I don't really know what to say at this point about this. Um, and then Bob Bradley, who's like a really serious dude most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, takes over and talks about you know, Bob Bradley about 
Uh, we all grew up with Michael's music, <laughs> and it was just the most uncomfortable press conference moment <laughs> ever. I there, loved it. There, there really is. Why well, I, I, I do have to give the 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 reporter who improvised and audible yesterday at the Russia game and asked the coach who had just called him. That was good. Which is which is what, which is what led to the Putin stuff. So that guy gets a, a a gold medal. But yeah, most of the questions are some variation of how do you feel. They 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 love asking this this very vague, open ended. How do you feel? And it probably follows a, a a you know minute and a half soliloquy about a topic of their choice. All of these um, folks around the world love it's just to, re- it's just remarkable. All these folks around the world love to act like Americans know nothing about soccer. Americans ask most of the good questions at World Cup press conferences. Brits are good. Uh, they are it was, too. It was, they it are was a good, too. good question from a German today, if I recall. But um, no, there's some good journalists in, in yeah. those countries. But I, I'm just saying that, like, um, I, there's a lot of bad questions. So um, I thought it was cool. So I, I led my story that you know there's this massive statue. It's like an 80 foot tall statue of Spartacus outside Spartak Stadium on like a red tile pyramid. Um, it's really eye catching. I don't know if it's nice or not. Um, I know I know all plain white jerseys with plain white shorts and plain white socks suck, but I can't really comment on on statuary. But it's certainly striking, and uh, you know the 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 idea of a of a poorly equipped you know band of 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 overmatched you know uh, but but well organized and 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 passionate um, sort of upstarts going up against the the big power. I mean, the metaphor is easy to see, you know, and so I thought it was kind of cool um, to to make that uh, comparison. And and you know, they're going up against, you know, maybe the best player who ever lived, and and a team that, uh, you know, this is it. It's it's trophy or bust for Argentina, obviously this time around. And and Iceland, meanwhile, is talking about, you know, yeah, this is big for them, but this is they've just gotten started, and this is a a step for them going forward. And no matter, you know. Hamir was was clear, you know, we're not our our journey is not going to be defined by three results in one month. You know, that this is something we've undertaken that you went to, you know, when you went to visit and did the video and or the movie, um, you know, this is something that they're going to continue with regardless. Um, whereas for Argentina, I mean, the results of these games mean absolutely everything. So I thought that contrast was interesting as well. I do know when I was in Iceland, uh, the coaching staff told me that they thought if they could get at least a tie out of this game against Argentina, one, they think they can. Two, uh, they think if they do that, they can advance from the group. But they feel like they need to get a point from this game. Um, let's look ahead quickly to tomorrow. Four games, really long day. Um, which of these games, we've already talked about Iceland, Argentina. But well, I'm going to that one. So Yeah, but okay. So we've also got Peru, Denmark, Croatia, Nigeria, and France, Australia. And, and what I would say is Peru, Denmark, to me could be a really decisive game in that group because you've also got France and Australia. France expected to... Yeah, you're right, yeah. That, that to get out, you know, to probably win the group. Results of that game could, could send a team to the round of 16. Should I'll, send a team to the round of 16. I'll say it right now. I picked Denmark in my Sports Illustrated picks. That was before Paulo Guerrero was reinstated for Peru, and I think Peru really has a good vibe going, got a ton of fans around here, and they've been playing good soccer, and I think they have a shot... Um, uh, they'll need at least a tie, I think, against Denmark. But I think they can beat Denmark. They could, yeah. And and I wonder how much, how how, um, you know, Hamir today, so you know, sort of lauded um, Ericsson as the you know the best 
you know, Nordic player, you know, he was, uh, he was talking about the Nordic countries. And, I never and, thought about it in those terms. Yeah. Well, that, well, he, well, they do. Yeah. Um, he also mentioned something called the Cod Wars. He did. I saw that quote. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't include it in my story because I have no idea what that is. He's basically saying Iceland has never gotten in wars he, except for the Cod, Cod wars, wars, but that didn't involve killing anybody. He, you so know, what, he, the, he was talking was about how everybody loves Iceland. How can you not love Iceland? We've never attacked anyone. I'm paraphrasing. And all we really, you know, we, we, there's just, there's, well, I mean, they never really attacked anyone. I mean, you know, Vikings weren't known for their quilting, you know, so I don't know how far back he wants to go. But Cod Wars, um, maybe that'll be the next, like, Star Wars trilogy. I'm imagining <laughs> catapults, next Marvel like, movie. shooting, like, masses of cod at, like, the other <laughs> opponent. Cod avalanches. So um, I completely lost my train of thought. Oh, uh, you know, D- Denmark Denmark has – it'll be interesting to see how Peru handles the stage and, and yeah. the pressure and the weight and the fan base that they have here and the drama with Guerrero back and forth. And, you know, yeah, they certainly have on paper, um, I would imagine, could win this game. But, you know, teams get to a World Cup, and especially if they haven't been there, and you sort of see see what, uh, what what's underneath. Um, so, yeah, it's intriguing. It'll be interesting to see. If, um, you know, we saw France um, be a little bit wasteful against the U.S. in that final friendly, you know, we want to see, you know, now when they're playing a team that they should beat, obviously pretty handily, are they able to finish those chances and sort of get in a bit of a groove? I noticed um, the French guy saying after the, their friendly against the U.S. that, well, Australia is better than the U.S. Which, by qualifying for the World Cup, I guess you could say is true. I guess. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I guess we'll find out. Um, we're going to sign off. Uh, long day tomorrow. Uh, we've, had a, we've had a long day today, <laughs> it, what, and yeah. we're going to head to bed soon. It's crazy. It's 3 o'clock. Um, and people are singing outside. People are singing outside right now. They're still outside. I got earplugs. Yeah. It's crazy. All right, man. Let's do it again tomorrow. Bye. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing. But there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out with friends, or need to find the perfect gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like being there in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and just with a few taps, I can instantly find seats. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code GRANT today. That's promo code GRANT for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Big thanks to Brian Strauss. Next up is my interview with Bruce Arena. Our guest today is Bruce Arena, 
He has won five NCAA titles and five MLS titles. He has also been the U.S. men's national team coach during three World Cup cycles. In 2002, he led the Americans to the quarterfinals. In 2006, his U.S. team went out in the group stage. And in 2017, he came in after two games of the hexagonal, and the team ultimately failed to qualify for World Cup 2018. Arena's new book with Steve Ketman is called What's Wrong With Us? A Coach's Blunt Take on the State of American Soccer After a Lifetime on the Touchline. Bruce, thanks for joining me. It's great to be here, Grant. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, we're recording this on June 10th. Your book comes out on June 12th. Uh, I'm in Moscow for the World Cup. You're in Los Angeles. Uh, And I read your entire book uh, and uh, enjoyed the read. Uh, I just wanted to start, I guess, by asking how this book came together and was the original plan not what it ended up being? Well, I was going to write a book um, towards the end of my career and and entered an agreement last year with HarperCollins. And uh, I think the book would have been different, obviously, if we qualified for the World Cup. Maybe the title would have been something like uh, Coaching America and the... uh, the last four chapters would be different as well. And, uh, you know, we had a plan and, and, and some chapters obviously in the book that's out now or, or were left out. And, you know, we were going to write and the perfect story was going to be, we qualified for the world cup and, and now we're preparing our team for Russia. Uh, obviously the events in Trinidad changed that. And I made some adjustments. And, and, and my editor at HarperCollins said, hey, hey listen, I, I think we need to take out s- some of these chapters where you were going to Germany and England and talking with the players and getting them ready to be you know, part of the U.S. team and this and that and discuss a little bit more why we're at where we are. And I obviously thought the suggestion made sense. And uh, I went about changing the introduction to the book and and the last four chapters is discuss some things that were obvious to me uh not only at that point in time but throughout my career you've won so much in your career bruce and i know you've been interested in writing a book about your career for a long time is it odd to you that it's finally coming out under these circumstances it is but you know when i when i when I took on the responsibility of being the national team coach, I realized, and I, you know, when, when I was putting a staff together, you know, we realized how difficult it was going to be. And, and, you know, I, I told them, listen, you don't need to come with me because in a year we may not have a job. Uh, we realized what the challenge was. Uh, we took it on. And uh, unfortunately, in the end, we failed. So the last part of the book that you write, you know, a good portion of the the first half, actually a little bit beyond the first half too, is about going through your career and big moments in your career, sort of inside uh, what happened. And it's an interesting read. Uh, But then the last few chapters, as you mentioned, get into sort of your prescription for what you would like to see happen with U.S. soccer as a federation and also major league soccer. And, it seems like to me, having read this now, the gist of which is you you think that there needs to be more emphasis on the technical soccer side and less on the business side that we've gotten out of whack in those areas, in the balance. Could you go into some detail on that? Well, I, I think you need all of that. 
you know, uh, there's not going to be a league. There, there will not be major league soccer if there's not progress commercially. And uh, and the league is growing. Uh, franchises are appreciating. Uh, teams are beginning to make a profit. I mean, that that's all very critically important. You know, I mentioned in the book, you know, we're very good in the politics of the sport. We're, we're good commercially. We're not good technically. And uh, we have two important entities in the sport. There's the U.S. Soccer Federation and Major League Soccer. And unfortunately uh, for Major League Soccer, U.S. Soccer is the governing body and they need to govern. And part of their responsibility in govern is promoting the game in the United States uh, grown it properly and having a plan for their national team programs. And one of them needs to be a, a, a we assuring through our professional league that Americans are getting the opportunities they need to grow and develop. And we fell short there. And again, this didn't uh, become obvious to me the day after we lost in Trinidad. It's been obvious to me all along. And, you know, I suggest and make some recommendations, for example, uh, the, the number of international player slots. You know, when you combine that with green cards and a lot of teams in Major League Soccer today, very few Americans play. So why are we surprised at the end that our national team program isn't grown? If you look around the league in Major League Soccer, very few Americans play anymore. Very few young Americans. If you look overseas, we have very few Americans that play at big clubs and have prominent roles. Why would one think that your national team program should be grown and should be qualifying for World Cups and challenging to win a World Cup one day? We need to get that right. Our domestic league has to be an environment where Americans can get on the field on a consistent basis, and young Americans as well. And in, in the book, as you, as you know, I cite some examples of how uh, Mexico has dealt with that problem, how England's dealing with that problem. And I think in our country now, we've got to examine that and, and, and come up with some solutions on how we develop our young players. Would you like to see specifically a rule like we've seen in Mexico that requires a certain number of uh, homegrown players uh, from that country on the field, from the U.S.? Yes. And, and, and you know, I, I've not... I didn't make specific recommendations because I, I think it's really wide open. There's a variety of things you can do. And that's the charge of the, the leadership to come up with it and come up with a solution. U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer have been in bed with each other for too long. And uh, U.S. soccer has got to make a stand now. That they, they, They've got to be very rigid in what they're thinking. And, and, and they've got to come up with a variety of rules and um, – MLS has to agree with it, but you know, we need more Americans on the field if we want to improve our national team program. What's your opinion on Ernie Stewart being hired as the first general manager of the U.S. men's national team? Well, as you know, in the book, I, I recommended on the flight back to Trinidad to Carlos Cadero that, that we needed to have a general manager of the national team program. And I laid out to him at the time what I thought the responsibilities uh should be. And uh, not surprisingly, Carlos put that in his uh, his platform when he's running for president. And uh, and and now recently we've we've uh, announced Ernie Stewart. I think Ernie's a good choice. I actually recommended Ernie in January when some uh, 
officials from U.S. soccer asked me who I would recommend, and Ernie was my first name. Uh, he, he's going to have a learning curve. He's still young in the management side of the sport. I, I'm not sure that anyone knows exactly what his responsibilities are going to be. I find it odd that they say that a general manager is going to pick the players and pick the style of play. I find that strange. I think he might as well coach the team as well while he's at it. So that has to be coordinated a little bit better. I don't believe a general manager is going to do all that, nor should he do that. The coach has to have those responsibilities. But I think for sure there needs to be a general manager in place. He has to have the responsibilities of that national team and coordinate everything. So throughout the book, you know, I I cite examples where I think because of poor leadership and poor decision making, uh, it, it put the U.S. team at a disadvantage in this cycle and previous cycles. When I started with the national team in 1998, at the end of 98, uh, at the time there was a big discussion that we were going to play Mexico a couple of times a year in the L.A. Coliseum and get 90,000 people paid. And I discussed to them that I didn't think that made sense. You know, we're in competition and. Uh, for friendlies, I didn't care, but for uh, World Cup qualifying games, it had to change. And that's where uh, we came up with Columbus. And I suggested Columbus as a venue. Choose a difficult venue uh, to play Mexico and give our team the best chance to win. And uh, the last time around, the uh, and I use this example in the book, the game against Costa Rica in New York was a just a poor decision on behalf of U.S. soccer. So I think that's something where a general manager uh, can have a voice and play a role in selecting the venues. So, you know, that's some of the suggestions I make and uh, some of the responsibilities I believe a general manager can have. Now, with that Costa Rica game in particular, there have been a lot of discussion, obviously, after the fact about the choice to play the game there and how much impact did the crowd have. I, and one of the responses was, well, they should have played better, the U.S. Did, how much do you think was it just they should have played better? I can't, I can't argue that. And, you know, you know everything I say uh, uh, in a game like that will be viewed as an excuse. But there's some facts as well. You know, we didn't play that well that day, but there were players in that game that could have made a difference. You know, the could have been a penalty kick for us in the first half on Josie Altador. You know, Novice makes this great save in the second half. So that was a close game. And it's just a couple of plays. And, yes, we we could have played better. And at the end of the day, I would say this. In the Hex, I strongly believe the, the, the best two teams were Mexico and Costa Rica, and I think the United States was the third best team. Yet we fell short on, in in the most important game in the last day of the Hex. So, we need to accept that responsibility. Discussing home venues, I think it's critically important. I also thought playing uh, Panama and Orlando wasn't the best venue for us. And, and we came through and won. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned in the book, uh, I, I pressed U.S. soccer real hard to get the game in March in San Jose against Honduras rather than Salt Lake City that they had chosen. So all of those things, are, you know, <laughs> are big mistakes on behalf of the Federation. And I think having a general manager in place now, he can take on those kinds of responsibilities. 
style of play, let the coach do that. Let the general manager do those type of things. Yeah, in your book, you also mentioned that you would like to see, in addition to a general manager, a separate technical director. Um, how would that work in your eyes? In your eyes, and uh, when I see right now that the general manager doesn't have any control of, over youth development, that seems a little strange. But that would be something that a technical director would do, right? I, that's what I, I think they should have a, a technical director that oversees the youth development, the academy programs the coaching education, the sports science, a person responsible in those areas. The, the job of the general manager of the national team program should just be the national team. Mm -hmm. So for years, they've neglected to do those things because in all honesty, uh, as, and I mentioned this in the book, you know, why doesn't Major League Soccer have a technical director? I mean, they own the, they own the contracts of every player. They should have some responsibility in understanding a technical plan that the league takes and the club takes and, and have a voice there. So I, I think for, for, for too many years, that the responsibilities of running uh, Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer have been left to uh, just a few people and people that don't have enough experience or knowledge to run the technical side. And it's time to wake up and understand that huh, the, the sport is challenging. We now have a lot of competition and we've got to get updated in these areas. Who do you think should be the next U.S. men's national team coach? I think uh, it can be an international coach or a domestic coach. I am not locked in on the fact that it has to be an American. My preference would be American, but regardless, I, I think the number one priority is he has to speak English. Mm. I don't know if that's... You know, I don't know how you think about that, but I think that's the number one requirement. I think there are, uh, are some good young coaches in the league. And, you know, we all see names that they mention. They're all possibilities. And uh, that new coach has to have a good working relationship with Ernie Stewart. So knowing, uh, you know, I think Ernie's obviously has some preferences. He's got a plan. And I think there are some coaches in Major League Soccer that he would think are people he'd give strong consideration to. But for me, you know, I know people always think that I say it just has to be an American. I don't necessarily agree on that. I, I could think of a couple of people uh, in Europe that I think would be great as well. But I think in the end, it's probably going to be a domestic coach. Let's throw out some names. I mean, are there any, like, who are the couple of uh, international coaches you think should be considered? Uh, well, <laughs> I, since I have no say in the matter, I don't think I should be doing that, to be honest with you. <laughs> I would say that, you know, one, I'm sure the Twitter feeds will uh, would enjoy that. I look forward to your Twitter feed someday, by the way. Um, Never going to happen. I think people like the President of the United States and others get themselves in a lot of trouble using Twitter. <laughs> I mean, the one coach who might be a candidate, I don't know for sure yet, who doesn't speak much English is Tata Martino in Atlanta. So you think that that's something where he would... I don't think that's a good choice, to be honest with you. Why? Because he doesn't speak English. I know he's worked a little bit. I just don't know how much, but there's not a lot right well, now. Well, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't know the extent of that, so I, I really can't comment. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of... You don't. Best American coach right now, by the way, is probably Bob Bradley. Why shouldn't he be considered then? I think he should be. Okay. I do too. Um, 
So there's not necessarily any direct jabs in your book at Jurgen Klinsmann, but there are a few moments that sort of you can see the subtlety. One is here uh, on page 202, quote, this was a team that had been starved for direction, so it was worth going all out to make sure we were all on the same page. Um, You mentioned that uh, earlier, there was clearly a problem with Michael Bradley and Jurgen. Michael didn't think the team was prepared properly, and as the son of a coach, that ate him up. Having been around his dad all those years and played for his dad on the national team, Michael respected the fact that there are certain things you have to do with teams to get them right. He felt that under Klinsman, something had been lacking. Um could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because Michael hasn't said very much publicly about. Uh, well, I, I, I'm I'm not going to uh, elaborate on Michael uh, specifically, but I'll be honest. I, I threw a lot of softballs in this book. Uh, I I could have been a lot harder. Uh, I know where a lot of the bodies are buried in in the sport of soccer. Uh, the team was was dysfunctional uh, when we took it over in uh, November 2017 and. That was part of the charge, and it was real difficult. And you know, a lot of people wonder why you know we didn't bring in other players. This or that. You can't. You're in qualifying. You're in last place. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of, of obviously me and the players. And and I would I would say this you, to 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 that criticism. People don't know what they're talking about. The the players gave a fantastic effort. You know, I, I, I've heard that, you know, they didn't care. How, how do you go 14 games undefeated, of which most of those games were in, in official competitions and, and not lose? And so go, to, go into the last day against Trinidad. At the time, in 2017, we have a record of 10 wins, one loss, and six draws. Does that sound like a team that didn't care, that didn't compete, I, I think it's irresponsible to report that way. And yes, we failed on the last day. So in the end, we end up 10-2 and 6 in 18 games in the year. And I think 13 of those were official competitions. We won the Gold Cup. In the Hex, we started 0-2 uh, at the end of 2016. In 2017, uh, we won three games, lost two, and had three draws. We scored 16 goals conceded seven, had a plus nine goal differential where we turned that whole goal differential around, which was critically important. So the guys, in all honesty, did a great job. And yes, in the end, we failed. And we're all taking the responsibility for that. But the criticism of the players and questioning uh, their commitment to the national team program is completely wrong. And, and I think when we took it over in November, uh, those questions are there. And uh, my involvement with the players throughout 2017, they were completely engaged in the cause. And they, they did a fabulous job. You know, we, we scored the most goals of any team in the hex in the competition. It's not like uh, this was a, a poor effort in 2017. And again, I can't I, I can't make any excuses, we failed. We didn't get the result we needed in Trinidad. But these guys worked their tails off. The coaching staff worked their tails off. And U.S. soccer supported us. So, you know, sometimes in sports you you fail in the end. But the the criticism 
of individuals, uh, tattooed millionaires, people that don't care, this and that, com completely false. This is a great group of people representing our country. And I'm not all embarrassed in saying that. And uh, I'm really proud of the effort they gave us. The two games that sort of stand sure. out uh, late in, in the hex are Costa Rica and Trinidad in terms of... Of course. Uh, in terms of what led to, to not qualifying. I, I guess if you could go back and rethink any of the decisions you made in those two games, what would they be? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, if you play a game, you, 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 you've heard the expression Monday morning quarterbacks. Sure. Those are all the phonies in the world. And, and that's, uh, and I'm not trying to say journalists are phonies because, you know, the next day everyone writes and they have all the solutions. And we don't get those chances as coaches. So I haven't even seen the Trinidad. I've never watched the last game of any game I've coached in a season or with a national team, that kind of thing. Because I know you can't change anything. Uh, the Costa Rica game. I, I mentioned this in the book. We come out of the Gold Cup. We win the Gold Cup. We finally have a little consistency in our lineup. And uh, I make five changes I believe it was five. I'm trying to remember correctly now where I used five of the European base players in the Costa Rica game. And I'm trying to think exactly who they were. I think Bobby Wood is one. Christian Pulisic is another. Fabian Johnson, Jeff Cameron, Tim Ream. I think those are the five. And I keep six other players that started in the Gold Cup game. And uh, it's early September, so the players in Europe aren't as sharp as they need to be, aren't as fit as they need to be. Uh, but out of the two games, I said, if we're going to use these players at all, it should be the first game at home in conditions that are more suitable for these players. And I made that decision. And uh, some of them played well, some did not. Uh, but it was obvious that uh, we lost the rhythm we had coming out of the Gold Cup. So when we went back to Honduras, uh, we made some changes and, and used most of our players that played in the Gold Cup. And then I made that decision that uh, in the month of September, we looked at our players that were playing in the different club teams. And for Panama, we decided to go with that lineup. It was our, our best lineup, we thought, on that day to play. So, as you know, we're successful against Panama. And now we're in position. And we told our team, it's CONCACAF. We know it's going to happen. The officiating, you never know. We watched Trinidad play in Mexico, and they led Mexico for 75 minutes in Mexico. We knew it was going to be a tough game. So we had to make a decision. Do we make many changes from a game where we finally have, since the Gold Cup, a really good effort against Panama? We spend a couple of days evaluating players, letting them rest, talking to every player, using our sports science team that evaluated every player, our training staff, our doctors, our coaches, everyone signed off that they were okay. So why would anyone think that that's a dumb decision playing the same 11 against Panama that you played, I mean, against Trinidad that you played against Panama? It th made sense to me. I think people and saw that, yeah, I, I guess what I would say is the fans would probably say you were changing lineups between the first and second game in previous windows of the Hex. Why not do okay. that this time around? You, you want me to explain that? Yeah. 
we made three changes going from Honduras to Panama in March. Those three players were hurt in the, in the game against Honduras. John Brooks, Jeff Cameron, and Sebastian Legette. We made three changes for Panama. Right? Are those changes? Yeah. You had to make I mean, you had to, but I mean, slight. But I think people are thinking of Mexico to Trinidad or Trinidad to Mexico game and stuff like that. Okay, let's think of Trinidad, Mexico, because Mexico's uh, participation in the Confederations Cup, our game was moved up two days. So we're playing in Denver Thursday and in Mexico City on Sunday. So you don't have the same rest. You travel into Mexico, you're playing in altitude. Completely different scenario. If we were playing in Mexico City on Tuesday, I wouldn't have made as many changes. You know, some people have to think about what's going on. We were going to make, when we came into camp for the Trinidad and Mexico games, on day one in training, before we played Venezuela and friendly, we already told the team, we're going to make changes from Trinidad to Mexico because of the, uh, the short recovery, the altitude, and we're going to play a different formation. So we trained from day, and we knew all of that. So you go from uh, then you have a different window, obviously, when you're playing in a cycle for for Costa Rica and Honduras and Panama and Trinidad, right? You have the shorter week of preparation, uh, but you have the longer uh, recovery for the second game. So things are completely different. So the people that say you did this and that, well, there were reasons for that, reasons for that, and I explain that. Yeah, I, the other question I think that comes up on the Trinidad game, and granted this is Monday morning quarterbacking, is why not give Michael Bradley a little more support uh, in that Trinidad game protecting the back line and perhaps be more conservative, play for the tie? Well, we weren't going to play for a tie necessarily, but uh, we conceded the goal 17 minutes in the game. And that, that changed things completely. The way we, we started that game was uh, Ariola and Nagby was supposed to play off the shoulder of Michael Bradley to start the game. So we were playing uh, really uh, with two players next to Michael. They were playing a lot tighter, more in a diamond version. You know, the, uh, the previous games, we, we played Michael uh, uh, in a solo role there, simply as a number six. But to start that game, we asked Nagby, and uh, Ariola to play next to Michael. It may not have looked that way, but everything changed where we got the chance early in the game with Altidore, and then the own goal 17 minutes in, we're now down a goal, and things change. And my thinking was simply, and I explained this in the book, let's get in half. You know, we, we started playing well between the 20 and 35-minute mark in the game. Let's try to get in even or down a goal at halftime, and we'll make some changes. And then the second goal came, and we were really behind the eight ball. So the, the reason we lost to Trinidad was not because Michael Bradley was sitting there alone as, as a number six. Um, we made some mistakes. You know, we, con- we, gave, we conceded in an own goal, and then they scored a somewhat of a miraculous second goal to really put us behind the eight ball. You mentioned several times in the book that you were surprised with Jeff Cameron uh, in different moments of 2017. Uh, Jeff has been. I pub- said. What's that? I said that in the book. Yeah. I said that in the book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that you were I, the 
at least on two occasions that you were surprised with uh, something that Cameron did, either that he said to you or uh, sort of his, he said he was complaining a lot in the March games behind the scenes. Uh, Jeff has said publicly uh, in the New York Times story with Mark Stein that uh, he felt there was a real divide between the European-based players and the North American-based players on the team. Uh, obviously, you chose Omar Gonzalez over Jeff Cameron in several games. Um, what was going on there with Jeff Cameron? Well, Jeff's a different type of character, but I don't hold it against anyone to speak out and say what they think. And I think that if Jeff had to do it over again, he probably wouldn't comment the way he did because my understanding is some players really got after him for that. But Jeff, uh, you know, we first time I worked with Jeff was in March uh, when we played Honduras. He came out of that game with an injury, wasn't able to play in Panama. Uh, in, in June, I thought he did a very good job for us against uh, uh, Trinidad and Mexico. I, I, I thought he was outstanding in the Mexico game. He came in, in in September, didn't play well against uh, Costa Rica, and then gave us a great effort in Honduras for 30 minutes. And uh, he expressed uh, to to me a lot. He wasn't happy with that, mm-hmm. that he should have been starting mm-hmm. and this and that. So in, in all honesty, behind the scenes, you know, we, we look at every player and we're in communications w- with their clubs. Uh, in September, Jeff got hurt again once he left the uh, uh, our game in Honduras and came back the last week and played a game before he came in uh, for the Panama game. But through the injuries and all, I was in communication with him and I explained to him that uh, he didn't look like he was fitting in the right kind of form in, in, for the Costa Rica game. And now he's injured when he comes in for Panama. My plan is to go with this group of players. And I explained that to him and I said, you know, if you don't feel that's right and you don't want to come in, uh, that's your decision to make, but that's what my plan is. So I was pretty clear to him about that. So we played the uh, the game against Panama. I had a good game. So the question is, and I discussed this in the book, you know, we as a staff met over this. Do we make any changes? And we clearly, you know, discussed the possibility of playing Guzan over Howard, bringing Bedoya in the midfield, possibly playing Cameron, possibly playing Beasley or Zeus, you know, all of those uh, issues we discussed. And in the end, after going through the whole checklist of checking with our medical staff or sports scientists or doctors, our coaches, talking with the players, we decided to stick with the group that, that won against Panama 4-0. And obviously, in the end, when you lose, then everyone's going to be critical and saying, you should have did this, this, and that. And obviously what would happen is if we made three or four changes and we got the same result, what would you guys be saying? Why did you change the team that started against Panama? So you can't win. So on Monday morning, I don't worry about what you have to say on Monday morning. You got to get to me before the game starts. You know, and, and, but those are the decisions we made. And you live by them. That's what sports is. And it's a lot easier for the people that haven't been in the arena, that haven't stepped between the lines, haven't been in these kind of situations to really understand that. But 
I, I feel good about everything we did. I feel real good about the efforts the players gave U.S. soccer in 2017. And yes, we failed. But uh, I think the, the guys did a terrific job coming back from being behind the eight ball, uh, being 0-2 to start the year. And, you know, our whole goal was to get to the last game. You know, when we started in March, we said, we, this is not going to be easy. We've got to try to position ourselves where in games 9 and 10, we have a chance to qualify for the World Cup. And we got there. And yes, we failed. So there's no excuses. There's an element of the U.S. soccer fan base that when you went out and uh, were part of the Fox broadcast of the Portugal friendly, uh, they're like, why is he speaking publicly right now? We don't want to see this guy. Uh, They'll probably feel like, what's he doing writing a book? What would you say to them? I'd say say that I live in the United States of America. And we have freedom of speech, and you're allowed to you're allowed to discuss things publicly. You can go on television, you can write a book. You're not uh, forbidden to live the rest of your life the way you want to live. I have a story to tell. Uh, people really don't know me, and I try to explain in the book who who I am, what influenced my coaching career, the experiences I had as a coach my thoughts and recommendations and moving the game forward. If I can't speak about that, uh, some of these pundits on television have no, no right to talk about anything. And if I can't do that, who can? So that's what I'd say to the soccer fans. And, that, and I'd say, you know, thanks for your support and your continued su- support of the sport. I think you're right. And, you know, progress is never a straight line. There are peaks and valleys. And, you know, maybe this is going to be good for us in the end. Not that I wanted it that way. Right now, I'd rather be in Russia right now, preparing our team to play the opening game of the World Cup. It fell, We fell short. Listen, I took on this responsibility. I could have easily stayed with the LA Galaxy, had a contract that put me in comfortable position for a number of years, but I took on that challenge and responsibility. I thought that was something that I had to do, and, and I did it. And uh, when you come up short, it's disappointing. I know we have thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people that are, are disappointed the U.S. team isn't there. But there are some reasons for that. And I tried to explain that in the book as well. And that's why I think I had the right to go on Fox in November. And I have a right to write a book like anybody else. So that's the answer I give you to your question. Do you want to coach again? It's possible in the right situation. Uh, you know, I need to be in a situation where I would be with an organization or a club that wants to be successful. You know, uh, uh, I've, I've stepped into some messy situations with the Galaxy, with U.S. soccer, and it takes a lot of energy to rebuild and, and to correct other people's mistakes. I'm not sure I always want to be in that position. You know, in a, in a perfect world, I'd love to take on a, uh, an expansion team and start from scratch. Uh, but, you know, if there's, if there's a possibility down the road, I'll examine it. Uh, one thing I've realized after it's about, you know, now six or seven, eight months uh, since the game in Trinidad, I'm, I'm really comfortable where I am. 
and uh, what I've done in my coaching career. I think there's a lot I can offer the sport. I think I would be better positioned in a management position now. I think, as I indicate in the book, there's a lack of leadership in the technical side of the sport. I think that's something I can offer. I know I can still step on the field and coach and, and uh, uh, build a good team and, and a winning team and a team that can compete for championships. So if any opportunities come uh, across my way over the next couple of months, I'm going to think about it, but it has to be the right situation. Is there some part of you psychologically that doesn't want to go out this way as this being your last coaching thing? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that, that that's necessarily bothers me because, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the effort I put in, uh, with the national team in 2017. Uh, I'm also proud of what I've done in my career. And, uh, if, if you can put too many people next to me that can match what I've accomplished, uh, please advance some names. So I don't feel bad about that. Uh, no, I do. I do feel bad about that. Let me. I should. I, I should state that. I, I don't feel good about the fact we didn't qualify for the World Cup. Uh, do I have to redeem myself? Uh, I don't. Not necessarily. Uh, but uh, if there's a, a next situation for me, either in in coaching or in management, it has to be the right situation. But as I look around, I'm very confident in the fact that I know uh, it, my next opportunity. Uh, would be a positive one because I, I know I would build something in the right way. Is part of you, I, I guess I'm wondering, I look back at 2002 and that is the high point in the history of U.S. men's soccer. And you were a part of that. There are a lot more fans of the U.S. men's national team today than there were in 2002. Does part of you find it unfortunate that there weren't as many fans then who remember that? No. I, uh, my whole career, uh, I've been at the bottom and, and, and uh, built things forward from a, a college coaching career uh, to 96, starting with D.C. United, uh, where that team was, where the league was at the time, with the national team taking over after a, uh, the World Cup in France. So I, I've been in all of these cycles and and I've been inside the game. I've, I've seen everything about it in our country. And uh, and, and part of the story is, is uh, the day in Trinidad in October of 2017. That's all part of it. And uh, although it's a disappointing result, as I said, I'm, I'm privileged to have been part of all of this. So... If there are fans that don't remember 2002, that you know, there's nothing I can do about that. But I, I feel that everything I've been involved with, even even my opportunity with New York Red Bull after the 2006 World Cup, I think I went into a situation and we really made progress. And some of the things I did then are still there today. So uh, everything I've been involved in, I, I felt good about. And 2017 was a real good professional experience for me. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the challenge. I knew exactly what I got myself into and I would have loved to have pulled it off in the end. And, you know, it's uh, a couple of plays here and there made a difference. And 
That's what sports is about. So when I see, uh, say, in the NBA, a, a player like LeBron James uh, not winning a championship at Cleveland, uh, I just think his legacy is, has improved from what I saw out of him this year. So you don't judge people simply about winning things. You judge them by the way they went about doing their business. And I felt I went, went about my business the right way and, and did everything I could to position the U.S. team to be in Russia. The book is called What's Wrong With Us? A Coach's Blunt Take on the State of American Soccer. It's out now in bookstores and online everywhere. Bruce Arena, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Grant. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football World Cup Daily Podcast. I'd like to thank Bruce Arena and Brian Strauss, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do, and we'll see you tomorrow. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.